Shalom and welcome back to my commentary to Omer Reshit, the first sheaf. And uh, my name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi, and we are talking about the timing issues of the 16th of Nisan um, versus some of the other um, proposed uh, days for the um, occurrence of the beginning of the counting of the Omer. Um, we understand that um, God tells us that Passover occurs on Nisan 14th. And we understand that God tells us that unleavened bread occurs on Nisan 15th. But what God doesn't say is that um, Omer Rishit begins on Nisan 16th. And so we have to determine from the phrase on the morrow after the Sabbath whether or not that's the morrow after the festival Sabbath, which of course would be Omer uh, or, uh, 16th following the 15th, or is it the morrow after the weekly Sabbath, which would be a Saturday. Um, Either position presents difficulties uh, because of the um, ambiguity or seeming ambiguity of the Hebrew phrase there. And so I hope we were able to provide in my commentary some information to help you make an informative decision for your community. It's my hope that we as a Torah community can actually come together and make a decision which way we should go, one way or the other, because as, as was shown, depending on which day we choose to begin the count of the um, first sheaf, it will affect which day we actually celebrate Shavuot 50 days later. So we must um, we must come to some type of an agreement. Now, as I understand history and as I understand the, the information that I've um, uh, exegeted on my own, along with the help of Levine, the help of Haig, the help of other authors, what we seem to have um, is, a, is in Yeshua's day, we had a prevailing view um, of the Sadducee, I'm sorry, of the Pharisees, which took... A um, which took a view that the days followed conjunction-like, that is to say, back-to-back with no break between. 14th, 15th, 16th of Nisan were all conjunction. They were all stuck together with no days separating them. Um, and that the Sadducean view, or the Bethusian view, um, allowed for days to be um, inserted between the 14th, the 15th, and then Omer uh, Rishit. So, again, for, for now, I'm going to go with the, the, uh, the fair sake model. I'm going to go on record as saying that for now, as of April 2007, I, Ariel, uh, take the fair sake model. If new information is unearthed that can prove conclusively that it's not the, the fair sake model, then perhaps I'll um, be willing to switch my view. But for now, I believe also the harvest of which I attend goes with the Pharisaic model. All right, let's move on. This is part B to the commentary, and let's talk about the three literal days and three little nights question. This is a question that many of you are familiar with. Was Yeshua in the tomb for three days and three nights? Literally, if that were the case, he could not have um, died on Friday and arose on Sunday, according to many, because the timing is simply off. I had a well-meaning discussion with a well-loved um, member of my uh, congregation on the first uh, Monday uh, when we did our seders, and she was adamant that it just does not make logistical sense for Yeshua to say, "I will be in the grave." just like Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, and then allow for him to die on Friday and to be raised Sunday morning sometime. It doesn't give enough time. And I understand her consternation. Um, if we take the phrase three days and three nights as literal 24-hour periods, then Yeshua had to be in the grave 72 hours at least. But what we're going to find out in this next section is that it does not necessarily... Um, uh, how should I say? It does not necessarily... Uh, coincide with 
24 literal hours um, if we allow for Yeshua's phrase to be taken I either idiomatically or um, inclusively. And I'll explain those phrases as we go. All right? But first, I'd like to turn to esteemed Seventh-day Adventist author and scholar Dr. Samuel Bachiaki to provide us with an answer to this oft-asked question. I like Bachiaki's work because, number one, he is thorough. He leaves no stone unturned in his research. He is probably the only author I know who is more thorough than Tim Haig. And Tim Haig's pretty thorough. So if you want, if you're looking for someone who's very technical and someone who is who who just um, goes to the nth degree to do his research, Bakiaki is the one you want to um, go looking for. His name is spelled capital B A C C H I O C C H I Bakiaki. All right, let's turn to his materials because I think he just answers the question right up front, and I don't even need to comment much further after he gets through speaking. So here we go. Quote. The literal interpretation of the phrase three days and three nights as representing an exact period of 72 hours ignores the abundant biblical and rabbinical evidence on the idiomatic use of the phrase, quote, a day and a night, end quote, to refer not to an exact number of hours or of minutes, but simply to a calendrical day, whether complete or incomplete. So let me just pause and say, when Jesus said for three days and three nights, he just means three calendrical days. Calendar days, calendrical. Okay, if I say Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Wednesday, well then those are three calendrical days, and I'm not necessarily <clears throat> um, stating when I say Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday that it's all of Monday, all of Tuesday, and all of Wednesday. But let's say that my um, cousin comes to stay with me, f- and I say he stayed with me for three calendrical days. He stayed with me f- from Monday through Wednesday. Everyone would understand that it's Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he had to stay starting when Monday started at midnight and left on Wednesday at midnight. See what I mean? Um, from Monday through Tuesday, and then from Tuesday through Wednesday. Uh, th- three sets of 24 hours. It that doesn't necessarily have to happen. That's what Bakiyaki is trying to um, tell us here in this next section. Okay. He goes on to say that Matthew, for example, writes that Yeshua... Quote, fasted 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. That's Matthew 4, verse 2. The same period is given in Mark 1, 13 and Luke 4, 2 as, quote, 40 days. But it doesn't say anything about the nights. So, which does not necessarily require 40 complete 24-hour days. So, again, um, our, 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 our conventional wisdom needs to be challenged in this particular area. Bakiaki goes on to say, it's important to note that in biblical times, a fraction of a day or of a night, was reckoned inclusively as representing the whole day or night. This method of reckoning is known as inclusive reckoning. A few examples from the Bible and from rabbinic literature will suffice to demonstrate its usage. All right. Uh, first one, um, we have an abandoned Egyptian. And this is taken from 1 Samuel 30, verse 12. And it, Bakiaki explains that it speaks of an abandoned Egyptian servant who, quote, had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights, end quote. The idiomatic usage of this expression is shown by the following verse, where the servant states that his master had left him behind, quote, three days ago. That's in verse 13, the very next verse. So, let's just uh, logically deduce. If the three days and three nights were meant to be taken literally, then the servant should have said that he had been left behind four days before. 
Does that make sense? Seeing how it works? So the phrase in this passage, three days and three nights, is idiomatic, and it's also um, <clears throat> it is uh, equal to the phrase three days ago. See? So um, let's, let's continue looking at another example here. Um, we're going to talk about Esther here next, okay? Let's talk about Esther's visit to the king. Another explicit example of inclusive day reckoning is found in the story of Esther's visit to the king. When Queen Esther was informed by Mordechai about the plan to exterminate the Jews, she sent this message to him, quote, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf, and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king. End quote. That's Esther 4, verse 16. <clears throat> now, if uh, uh, Bakiaki explains, if Esther intended the three days and three nights to be taken literally as 72-hour periods of fasting, then she should have presented herself before the king on the fourth day. Does everyone agree? I think they do. Everyone does agree, alright? However, we're told a few verses later that Esther went before the king on the third day. That's Esther 5, verse 1. Instead of on the fourth day, something's wrong. You see, examples such as these clearly show that the expression, quote, three days and three nights, end quote, is used in the scriptures idiomatically to indicate not three complete 24-hour days, but three calendric days, three calendar days, of which the first and the third could have consisted of only a fraction of a day, part of the third day. Okay? Let's get another example here, rabbinic literature. Explicit examples for inclusive day reckoning are also found in rabbinic literature. For instance, Rabbi Eliezer ben Azariah, who lived uh, about um, AD 100, stated, quote, A day and a night are an ona, which is a portion of time. And the portion of an ona is as the whole of it. There are other instances in rabbinic literature where the three days and three nights of Jonah 117 are combined with Old Testament passages which mention events that took place on the third day, end quote. Um, it is in this light, writes Gerhard Dilling in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, quote, that we are to understand Matthew 12, verse 40, end quote. Let's look at another quote, um, another example from Jewish practice. Again, this is um, Bakiaki's explanation for us. Jewish practice. The practice of inclusive day reckoning, according to the Jewish Encyclopedia, a standard Jewish reference work, is still in vogue among Jews today. Quote, in Jewish communal life, this is from the Jewish Encyclopedia, in Jewish communal life, part of a day is at times reckoned as one day. Example, uh, the day of the funeral, even when the latter takes place in the afternoon, is counted as the first of the seven days of mourning. You remember we sit Shiva uh, when people um, pass away from our community. Uh, a short time in the morning of the seventh day is counted as the seventh day. Circumcision takes place on the eighth day, even though on the first day only a few minutes remained after the birth of the child, these being counted as one day. End quote. That's from the Jewish Encyclopedia. Bakiaki goes on to explain, the examples cited above clearly indicate that in uh, biblical times the expression, quote, a day and a night, end quote, simply meant a day, whether complete or incomplete. 
Thus, in the light of the prevailing usage, the expression, quote, three days and three nights, end quote, of Matthew 12:40 does not require that Yeshua be entombed for 72 hours, but for a full day and two partial days. And that first portion from Bakiaki's work was taken from Samuel Bakiaki, The Time of the Crucifixion and the Resurrection, Biblical Perspective, uh, per- Perspectives, published in 2001, page 15 and 16. I want to continue using Bakiaki's information here for this next section of my commentary, entitled Chronology of Passion Weekend. Let's pick up Bakiaki's reading here. Quote, the chronology of the Passion Weekend provides further evidence of the idiomatic use of the phrase three days and three nights. The days of the crucifixion, entombment, and resurrection are given in clear sequence and with considerable clarity in the Gospels as Preparation Day, Sabbath first day. Mark, who writes for a Gentile readership, and Mark was exactly where I was going to go as well, but Bakiaki beat me to the punch. Mark, who writes for a Gentile readership, less familiar with Jewish terminology. I might also add that John writes uh, for his Greek readers as well. Mark, who writes for a Gentile readership with less familiarity with Jewish terminology, explains with utmost clarity the Messiah was crucified on, quote, the day of of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath. End quote. That's Mark 15.42. In the following chapter, it will be shown that both the term preparation, which is parascue, the Greek term, and Sabbath Eve, which is prosabaton, are two technical terms used unmistakably to designate what we call Friday. Mark, then, is most precise in explaining that the crucifixion took place on what today we call Friday. The next day is designated by Mark as Sabbath. That's Mark 16, verse 1, which in turn is followed by the first day of the week. Read Mark 16, verse 2. So, Mark's chronological sequence leaves absolutely no room for a two-day interval between the crucifixion and the resurrection. Similarly, um... Luke makes it clear that the day of Yeshua's crucifixion was followed not by a Thursday or a Friday, but by a weekly Sabbath. He writes, quote, It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. Luke 23:24. And by linking the beginning of the Sabbath to the end of the day of preparation, and the beginning of, quote, the first day of the week, end quote, which we read in Luke 24, verse 1, uh, to the termination of the Sabbath in Luke 23.56, Luke then leaves no room, in fact, he, le- he leaves absolutely no room for two full days to intervene between the crucifixion and the resurrection. resurrection. And that information is found, again, in Bakiaki's work that we just cited there, the time of the crucifixion and the resurrection. This time it was on page 18. Let's keep reading for, from Bakiaki's work. He's got a section now entitled No Two Sabbaths. Some wish to make room for intervening days by arguing that between the Wednesday crucifixion and Saturday afternoon resurrection, there were two Sabbaths. And the two that they mention are the first, a Passover Sabbath, a Sabbath which fell on a Thursday. And then the second, they call a weekly Sabbath, which fell on the regular Saturday. Those are the two Sabbaths that many people try to argue. However, such an argument is based on pure speculation because nowhere do the Gospels suggest that two Sabbaths intervene between the day of the crucifixion and that of the resurrection. And support 
they go on to say, people do, uh, support for the two Sabbaths view is sought in the plural form, the Sabbath, in Matthew 28, one takes, which literally reads, quote, at the end of the Sabbaths, Shabbaton, uh, which would be the Hebrew, but Sabbaton in Greek. This text is viewed as, quote, a vital text, which proves that, that there were two Sabbaths um, that week with a day in between. Um, let me see here. A vital text, they say, which proves that there were two Sabbaths. The first Sabbath, Thursday, allegedly was the annual high day Sabbath, the feast day of the Days of Unleavened Bread, while the second was, quote, the weekly Sabbath, Saturday. Um, again, this conclusion is untenable, because as Harold Herner, Harold W. Herner, um, Henner, I'm sorry, points out, quote, the term Sabbath is frequently one it's frequently in the plural form in the New Testament when only one day is in view. And, and Henner goes on to point out that one-third of all of its New Testament um, usages in the New Testament are uh, plural. For example, in Matthew 12, verses 1-12, through 12, both the singular and the plural forms are used. And you can cross-reference that, um, especially to verse 5. Um, there is no, There is then no biblical basis for a Passover Sabbath which occurred two days before the regular weekly Sabbath. Okay, The clear and uninterrupted chronological, or chronological sequence of days given in the Gospel is, is, is this. Preparation day followed by Sabbath day followed by first day. This sequence leaves absolutely no room for a literal interpretation of the phrase three days and three nights as representing an exact period of 72 Hours. As fanciful as we like to say, it just doesn't work. And I'm convinced now. I used to be one that said, nope, three days, three nights, it's got to be 72 hours. But that I've come to discover after looking at the evidence is, is reading into the text. And I don't want to be guilty of reading into the text my own bias, even though my own personal bias from a West, Western point of view would be three days and three nights to take the shot and understand Yeshua to be three literal days and three literal nights. But understanding the data now with the inclusive reckoning, the um, the other biblical texts from, from Esther and such and Samuel, as well as the rabbinic information that I've provided, ought to convince you now as well that we do not have to fit Yeshua's um, Statement, three days and three nights, into three literal days and three literal nights. So what are my conclusions? Bakiaki again gives us this information. Conclusion, quote, The foregoing considerations have shown, first, that the sign of Jonah given by Yeshua to prove his messiahship consisted not in an exact 72-hour entombment, but in his resurrection on the third day after his death. Second, the phrase three days and three nights. Let me just pause there and back up. On the third day after his death. He dies on Friday. He's, he's in the tomb for Saturday. And on the third day, that would be Sunday, he's recorded to have been resurrected. Just like he said. On the third day after his death. On the third calendrical day. It doesn't necessarily have to be on the third 24-hour day. 
Um, Bakiaki goes on to explain. Secondly, the phrase three days and three nights, as found in Matthew 12, verse 40, is an idiomatic expression, which in Bible times meant not necessarily three complete 24-hour days of 72 hours, but rather three calendric days, of which the first and the third could have consisted of only a few hours. The latter conclusion is supported by the prevailing inclusive method of day reckoning by the parallel usage of the phrases, quote, after three days and, quote, on the third day, and by the under, uninterrupted chronological sequence of days, which does not allow for the complete three, uh, for three complete 24-hour days, um, again, a point that we're challenging in this particular commentary. Um, Bakiaki's conclusion is this, a recognition of these facts adequately explains how Yeshua fulfilled his prediction of a, quote, three days and three nights, end quote, entombment by being buried on Friday afternoon around 3 p.m. and rising early on, I'm sorry, he was buried probably between 3 p.m. And, and 6 p.m., which would have been sunset, roughly, and rising early on Sunday morning, probably sometime um, before the sun rose on Sunday morning, like 6 a.m., let's just say Sunday was 6 a.m., and um, sunset would have been 6 p.m., so we got a 12-hour period there. Midnight was what we call midnight. Um, those are the watches of the night. He, my understanding is that he arose sometime after uh, sundown on Shabbat, on Saturday, but yet before sunrise, uh, which I'm, I'm, I'm you know, estimating was like 6 a.m. Sunday morning. Sometime there, while it was dark, was when he was reported to have been seen by, um, by Mary. Okay, so that um, that's going to do it for Bakiaki's information. I got to tell you, after reading Bakiaki's notes, there um, it's pretty airtight. The passages that he pulls into his argument, the um, the notes from the rabbinic writings, it's fairly airtight. Wouldn't you agree? There's no reason for us to force fit a three literal day and three literal nights because it doesn't do any damage to the text if we understand the idiomatic usage and the inclusive reckoning. So why we hold on to the literal three days and three nights is beyond me. I don't understand why we defend that view when if we put all the scientific data on the table I could still be wrong that it's three literal days and three literal nights, but that but but if it were three literal days and three literal nights, that would still allow for partial days and partial nights. Whereas, I'm sorry, um, that would not allow for partial days and partial nights. Whereas, on my view, if we take the partial days and partial nights, the inclusive reckoning, if I'm wrong, it still allows for to expand it to the three literal days and three literal nights. So it's better to take the position that it's inclusive, uh, the position that Bakiaki just explained to us as well. After having said all that, what is the summary? How can we understand what I've just been explaining? Here now is a summary of the events surrounding the resurrection. This section in my commentary is entitled, Summary. Messiah rose while it was still dark. That would be sometime after the sun went down on Shabbat, the uh, date being Nisan 15th, the day of unleavened bread. This much is made clear by the reference from John 20, verse 1. Now keep in mind that on Saturday, the 15th of Nisan, as soon as the sun sets, the Sabbath is over and Sunday, the 16th of Nisan, Bikurim, or um, uh, Umar Rashid, I should say. Let me change that in my commentary again. Umar Rashid. Okay. 
as soon as the sun sets on, on Saturday, then Omer Reshit is upon us as well. Now, Messiah came up out of the grave and was spotted by his mother, uh, whom after recognizing proceeded to cling to him. You remember? That's in John 20, verse 17. He objected to her touching or clinging to him because in his own words, he had not yet ascended to his father. Now that's a wonderful statement. We've got to stop and look at that. What is the implication of his statement about ascension? Why would he? Why why is he hanging around? As Mark is fond of saying, Marco McClellan, my teacher. Why is he hanging around? Why why after he resurrected didn't he just um, disappear? What is he quote unquote waiting for? Well, I believe he had to present himself to the Father exactly the same way. The first fruits had to be presented before Hashem in the Torah, the Omer Reshit. Okay, let's take a look at a passage out of um, Leviticus. Let me just pull it up here. One moment, I'm just fixing something in my commentary again. There we go. Um, here we are, Leviticus 23.11. Quote, speaking of the priest, He is to wave the sheaf before Adonai so that you will be accepted. The Kohen is to wave it on the day after the Shabbat. Now let's go back to my commentary. The Midrash on this verse before I go and exegete the passage using some uh, rabbinic literature, the midrash of this verse, or the teaching that it's trying to give out to us, is that the believers, remember Paul called us um, unleavened bread? The believers are the crop that is being presented, or represented, on behalf of the first Omer, who is Yeshua himself. You get it? Yeshua is the first fruits from the dead. He is the Omer Rishit. Uh, he is the first sheaf from the dead. Yeshua waved himself, because Yeshua is both the high priest and the offering. He waved himself before the Father on our behalf. And the rest of the crop would be the behalf. That's us. Um, remember, the first sheaf represents the rest of the harvest that will be um, soon used by the people. And so, the rest of the crop is us. And Yeshua uh, since he has become our brother, he is the Omer Rashid. He's the first sheep. So that we, the resurrected ones to follow his resurrection, would be accepted by the Father. Thus, redemption was complete only after he presented himself to the Father, fulfilling the Pesach, the Hamatzah, and Omer Rashid. Exactly. I might add, at the same time that they were occurring on earth. Now, isn't that amazing? We often um, uh, remind ourselves that Yeshua was the Passover lamb, and that he died at exactly the same time that uh, many of the lambs were being slaughtered in the temple. We also remind ourselves that he was the unleavened bread that comes from the earth. He was resurrected. He's the unleavened bread. He was the sinless lamb of God. And within his body, that is to say his physical body, there was no leaven. There was no sin. We learned this in um, in the uh, commentary to unleavened bread, Chagamatzah. But now we must remind ourselves that Yeshua is also the Omer Rishit. He's the first sheaf to be waved before his Father in heaven, the first sheaf of of the resurrection, the first one to experience this resurrection and never die again. There have been people throughout the Tanakh, as well as people that we read about in the Apostolic Scriptures, the Synoptic Gospels, people who were raised from the dead. That's no big deal to be raised from the dead. But guess what? Every one of those people died again. Not so with Yeshua. 
once he was raised from the dead, he would never die again. And that's how it's going to be with you and I once we experience the power that he has has, um, uh, given to us, the power of resurrection, the power of a life that has defeated death and that has defeated sin. Ultimately, when the Messiah returns to give back, or, or I should say give to us that which he promised to us, we will experience this resurrection. Those of us who have died and have gone on before, those of us who are still alive, Paul clearly tells us um, that those who have died will raise first, and then those who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet Yeshua in the air, and our bodies will be changed. What is more, um, in uh, gathering this information about um, the spiritual aspect of Yeshua's resurrection, we need not also ignore the physical aspect or the bashat of what's taking place too. The Mishnah now is going to give us some information that seems to agree that the Omer was waved after the sun had set on the day of unleavened bread, which that year corresponded to sundown on Saturday. Let's quote the Mishnah, okay? Quote, the following histories from temple times are condensed from the Mishnah Ot and the Talmud. All right, here we go. Tractate Kodeshim, which is tractate, Kodeshim means holy things. Um, in uh, Seder Menachot of the meal offerings, chapter 10, Mishnah 1 reads, quote, The reaping of the ephah of barley for the Omer offering was performed immediately following the first day of unleavened breads, that is, at nightfall. At the beginning of Nisan 16, whether it was a weekday or a Sabbath, because the specific commandment superseded Sabbath prohibitions. Interesting. Let's keep reading. Tractate Kodeshim, Holy Things. Seder Menachot, Meal Offerings, Chapter 10, Mishnah 3 this time. Quote, The messengers of the Bet Din used to go out. The Bet Din, by the way, is the... um. The, the house of meeting, or the house of judgment, really, is what bet, bet Din. It is kind of the equivalent of what maybe what we would call in church circles today the elder board, or the elder meeting, or, or the, um, the, the the leadership meeting, okay? Where the leaders got together and discussed important congregational matters. The Bet Din would also get together and discuss synagogue matters. All right, the Bet Din used to go out on the day before the Feast of Unleavened Breads, the preparation day of Nisan 14th, before any reaping was performed, and tied bunches of the best barley. When the first day of unleavened breads was over at the beginning of Nisan 16, the reaping was done. Remember, they had already tied them together. The reaping was done. They put the sickle to it, just like it said in Leviticus. The reaping was done with many onlookers and with much ceremonial display. As soon as it was dark, after the sun had set on the 15th, uh, which was now technically the 16th. As soon as it was dark, the appointed reaper called out, Has the sun set yet? Or has the sun set? The people answered, Yes. He would crawl out, cry out again. Has the sun set? The people cried out, Yes. And then a third time. Has the sun set? The people cried out, Yes. Okay, then, then the reaper would cry, With this sickle? The people would cry, Yes. He would ask the question again, With this sickle? In other words, he was holding it. Remember the the Leviticus passage said that from the day that he puts the sickle to the grain. With this sickle, he cried out a second time, yes. And then finally a third time, with this sickle, they cried out, yes. And then again, he would ask the question to the crowd, to to the witnesses, okay? Into this basket, yes, they replied. Again, a second time, into this basket, yes. A second time they answered. And then finally a third time, into this basket, yes. They would answer. Now, if it were Sabbath, he added, 
on this Sabbath? In other words, if it were a Sabbath day, because sometimes the 16th can fall on a Sabbath day, where the sundown would be the Friday night, and then uh, the, the, um, the official 16th, the date of the 16th, would be on a Saturday. Remember, the dates don't change, but the days do change just like your, your your birthday of sorts okay you know someone out there says i was born on january 1st and that day was a sunday that you were born well the next year it wouldn't be a sunday it'd probably be a monday and then the next year would be a tuesday and so forth and so on um, then it gets all messed up once the leap year comes right so the point is your birth date never changes the first of january in my example but the day changes on which that date falls. Same thing is true in this example that I'm giving, all right? So, uh if it were Sabbath, the reaper would would um cry out uh, on the first for the first time on this Sabbath, the crowd would say yes. Again, the second time he would say on this Sabbath, and they would say yes. And then he would ask a third time on this Sabbath, and they would say yes. And then finally, he would ask a final question, "Shall I reap?" And they would answer yes. Again a second time, "Shall I reap?" And they would again answer, yes. And then a third time, shall I reap? And they would say, yes. Okay, end quote. Now, um, all of this, this information that we're talking about, why the pomp and circumstance? Why the ceremony? Well, the Mishnah goes on to explain that all of this was because of the Sadducees. Remember, this was a Pharisaic... Uh, 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 the, the, the Mishnah and the Gemara, the Talmuds, are a product of the Pharisees, okay? It's Pharisaic writings. And so when they put together all of this information for us, for the remaining rabbinic Judaisms that have survived down to this day, you could really ask yourself why, and the answer is because of the Sadducees who maintained that the reaping was not to take place at the conclusion of the first day. So for now, as of this writing, me, I, Ariel, I choose to take the Pharisaic view. Now, the Pharisaic view was the prevailing view in Yeshua's day. Paul was a Pharisee, and Yeshua, by the things that he believed in, for instance, the resurrection and in angels and spirits, he would have been considered a Pharisee. So, we know which calendar they, um, they uh, allied with, simply by the party affiliation that um, we're giving them right now. And so, um, as of this writing uh, in April of 2007... I choose to take the Pharisaic view. Then again, with the plethora of data available on the differing views, boy, we may never know for sure which, what the correct view is until Messiah comes to expound on the difficult parts of Torah for us. I'm going to give that room for growth. I'm not going to say, I've, I've arrived and I've got it figured out, so get on board and follow me. I would be foolish to say that, wouldn't I? What I'm willing to say is that given the the, the data that has been collected and viewed and examined, I'm going to go with the Pharisaic view for now that we have three consecutive calendric days for the festivals. We have Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruit, uh, or Passover, Unleavened Bread, Omer Reshit, corresponding to the 14th of Nisan, the 15th of Nisan, and the 16th of Nisan, respectively, and that those would be tandem-like days following back-to-back in conjunction like trains hooked together without any extra train cars in between the three cars that I just mentioned. So if I were to look at the calendar, 
I would see on any given week three days linked together with no break between the days. Okay, That's the view I'm going to go with right now. If you still have questions regarding that view, write in to me. I'll see if I can provide more information than I, than I provided in my commentary. Although after 13 pages of this information, with some more going to be showing up in the festival to Shavuot coming up in uh, 50 days here, or, well, not 50, but now, but... Uh, approximately 50 days. I don't see why anyone should have any more questions. All right. And with that, let's go ahead and bring part B of my commentary to Omer Rishit for Sheaf to a close. Uh, stick around for part C, where I will talk about the uh, questions that um, revolve around whether or not Sunday is a legitimate time for we as believers to gather together and recognize the resurrection of Yeshua. Stay tuned.